We thank you for listening to the weekly sermon of First United Methodist Church, Missouri City, Texas. We're a church that's making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. For more information about the church and its ministries or how we can pray for you, visit us on the web at fumcmc.org. If you desire to make a quick contribution in support of our ministries, you can text to give. Simply text the amount you want to give to 281-369-4870 and follow the instructions. And now, as you listen, we hope that you find this podcast meaningful and transformational in your journey of faith. So I, I find some comfort today in knowing that I'm guessing that most of us have heard the prayer uh, at least once before that we're going to talk about, unlike some of the other prayers we've done. And I'm willing to bet that a lot of us in maybe moments of frustration or um, uh, moments of anger, moments of confusion, looking for, looking for answers, something, we have even maybe prayed, God grant me the serenity. The prayer is said to be written in 1943 by a preacher theologian by the name of Reinhold Niebuhr, but there's all these arguments and discussions online about did he really write it, was it earlier, you know, and it really doesn't matter to me, except I would like to think that Niebuhr wrote it um, because it just sounds like something he would write for a sermon. And, and, and I discovered this little thing about this prayer, and, and, and I found it in a number of places. It is said that this prayer is the most well-known, popular, de- non-denominational prayer ever written. And by non-denominational, we're talking about not Methodist, not, we're talking about spanning all religions and all faiths. That this prayer transcends all of it. And I was, uh, so, so I discovered that not only is it the most popular, well-known, non-denominational prayer that transcends all time, it also appears to be the most rewritten and adapted prayer ever written, right? Because if, if you Google, you know, serenity prayer adaptation or whatever you want to Google it, it is um, all over. There's like a bunch of different ones. Some of them are humorous. This is my favorite. God grant me the senility to forget the people I never liked. The blessings of meeting with the ones I do and the eyesight to tell the difference. Anyone ever pray that one? Show of hands, show of hands. Here's, here's one. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because we've all done it. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things I cannot accept. And the wisdom to hide the bodies of those people I had to kill today because they really made me angry. Anyone ever feel, some of them are funny, some of them are just flat thought-provoking. This is one that got a laugh in another worship place, but it's really, uh. God grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change, the courage to change the one I can, and the wisdom to know it's me. Yeah, think about that one for a little while. 
And I love this one. God, grant me the serenity to stop beating myself up for not doing things perfectly. The courage to forgive myself because I'm working on doing things better. And the wisdom to know that you are already loving me just the way I am. Now, we should carry that one in our pockets. You know, I've thought a lot about this prayer this week because that's what I've been kind of going over again and again and again. And and all of a sudden I had this little brilliant idea, right? That I wonder what would have happened if God, right? If if God would have, oh, I don't know, maybe stamped that prayer on everyone's heart and in everyone's mind at the very beginning of creation, right? I mean, because because the the you, you do know what the what the center I, central idea of this prayer is, right? It's why AA uses it. It's why recovery programs use it. Because the first step in any recovery program is what to have to admit that you're powerless, to have to admit that you have no control. And this prayer is is that admit admission that you have no control. And as humans, that is really difficult for us to grasp. And it's really difficult for us to live with. And we don't like that at all, if we're honest. Because we like to be in control. And if God would have, at the very beginning of creation, just kind of popped this up there, right? In the beginning, God created the serenity prayer, right? I mean, because if you, if you, well, the whole thing, I mean, it all begins with Genesis, I mean, those of you who've been around know how much I love the opening of Genesis. It's a beautiful Hebrew poem. I think it's one of the most beautiful passages written when you hear in the original language. The rhythm and the meter of it is just amazing. And for those of you who've been around here, also know that I don't think it's an explanation scientifically of how the world began or historically how the world began. It is a poem that attempts to uh, describe the relationship between God and his creation. To, to, to make that earth-shattering uh, revelation that God, Yahweh, the one true God, is intimately connected and involved in creation. And it goes just the way God wants it for two chapters. And then third chapter comes, and some theologians call that the fall. Some theologians call it the, uh, the, the entrance of sin into the world. I don't know. It's, it, it's about this snake that walks and this apple that tastes good and this decision that two people make. And it is the moment where humans become disconnected from God and from one another. And for centuries, theologians and philosophers and preachers have argued, debated, tried to figure out what that original sin was, the first sin. And you'll, you, can, you can Google it, you can study it, and you're going to find a million different answers. Some people are going to say it's pride. Uh, other people are going to say it's greed. I read some theologians that said it's all about lust. Uh, and, and I think those are all great ideas. I just don't happen to agree that was the first one. You see, I, 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 I looked at the Bible, and, and I look at the world, but more importantly, I look at my own life, and if I'm honest, I think the whole thing boils down to an issue of control. So I think the whole thing started when Adam and Eve um, realized that they were not 
in control, but that they wanted to be in control. They realized at some point that God was at the top of the ladder and they were not. And they decided they didn't like this chain of command. And so when they were faced with the temptation, they basically said, we know what is best for us. We can choose whatever we want. We are in control of our own destiny. Now, I imagine none of you out there ever have felt that way. I'm willing to bet none of you have ever had that argument with God about who was going to be in control. I'm probably the only one, and it is a daily battle about control. Who will be in charge? And when Adam and Eve realized they weren't in control, but that they wanted to be in control, remember what they did? They hid. And when God found them, remember what God did? God said to them one simple question, why are you hiding? And, and Adam finally gets some nerve and he stands up. He says, because we, I was afraid. And with those words, the downward spiral began. And I think Adam was afraid because for the first time, he realized he wasn't in control. But he had this desire to be in control. I mean, look, why did Cain kill Abel? Because Cain realized he wasn't in control, but what did he want? He wanted to be in control. It's my theory. Why did the people of Israel wander around for so many years in the desert? Because they weren't in control, but what they wanted to be in control. I mean, right? Why did Moses strike the rock twice when he only had to strike it once? Because he, he, he wanted that control when he realized he wasn't in, so he said he would fix it himself. He would take care of things himself. He said, I am in control of my own destiny, and because of that, he was never allowed to enter into the promised land, and we can go on story after story after story in the Bible of this battle, this conflict between, uh, between God and the creation about who is ultimately in control, but there's, my, there's this story in Genesis that often just kind of gets lost on adults. Um, we, we, we teach it in VBS sometimes. You learn it in children's Sunday school. It makes for a great little flannel graph thing or whatever that thing's called. But, but it's just a beautiful story that illustrates this point in just living color. Um, so if you have your Bible, your Bible app, um, go ahead and open to Genesis 11, um, or you can look on the screen behind me either way. Uh, and I, what I love about this is that there are two viewpoints to this, right? The author is brilliant. Uh, verses 1 through 4 is all from the viewpoint of man looking up. Verses 5 through 9 is all viewpoint of God looking down. And it just changes the whole thing. So now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, if you write in your Bible, or highlight your app, or just kind of in your head, uh, underline the word migrated, because there are some translations that use the word travel. And if you look in the original language, that is exactly the same language the Exodus writer used when he's talking about the people of Israel wandering around the wilderness. They migrated, they traveled, right? Same word. 
right? So they, these people were just, bless you, these people were just kind of wandering, right? And, and then there's this little code word. Remember I taught you guys that Hebrew have code words, right? And you got to know the code word to understand it. And it's just simple. It says, they were going east. Code. East. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, which direction did they go? It is not a trick question. They went Come on, that was easy. I gave you the answer. When Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden and they were kicked out, which direction did they go? When Cain killed Abel and was punished, which direction did he go? Very good. When Noah, after he sinned, after the flood, which direction did he go? They just keep going east. And the easterward they go is a code word for the more uh, disconnected they come from God, the further away they move from God. Each step east brought you further away from God. That's Hebrew co-word. You ever see the word east? It may or may not be a true direction, but it's always that they're moving away from God. Just know that. Look at that. You got that for free. Wasn't even in the notes, was it? Nope. Just lost my guys back there. But it just makes me excited. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower, which is top in heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. In verse 5, if you're original reader, you would laugh out loud because it's really funny. But we don't laugh because it's the Bible, and we have to take it seriously. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals built. Isn't that a scream? These people, you missed it, right? These people were building this tower to heaven, right? And this is how bad of builders they were. What did God have to do? God had to come down. They were nowhere near heaven. They thought they were these stud builders, and they, well, they just weren't. Hebrew people would have laughed at that, not you guys. I just giggle every time I read that. I can just see, never mind. The, the Lord came down and the Lord said, look, they are one people. They have all one language and that is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, giggle, and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel. Now, preachers will preach that sometimes, and teachers will teach that, and, and they're going to go off, and they're going to yell at these people, of, of these Genesis folks, for being proud and arrogant, and I don't think that's the point of the story. See, because if you read verse 4, you'll know why they built the building in the city in the first place. It wasn't about them. They weren't building a monument for them. When the writer says, let us make our name for ourselves, what they were doing, they wanted to build a community, right? They, they built it because they thought they could make their own rules. They thought they were actually the ones in control because, see, there were at least three times prior to this where, they, where God told them, don't hunker down altogether, in fact, God said, he told, he told uh, Adam and Eve, uh, uh, be fruitful, multiply, and go scatter yourself upon the earth. 
Twice he told Noah and his people, uh, be fruitful, multiply, and go scatter yourself among the earth. But here are this group of people who said, no, we're not going to listen. We know better. We are in control of our own destiny. So we're just going to stay right here. And we're going to build this tower. And we're going to build this city. And we are going to be in control. And that's the point of the story so that that's why God had to come down and fix things. And I believe that if God would have come down and said to them, why did you build this city? Why did you build this tower? They would have just said, because we were afraid. Because they realized they weren't in control and that's all they wanted to do is be the ones in control control. Now, again, I just don't want to speak for you guys. I can only speak about my life. I don't know what's going on inside your head, inside your mind. I don't know what's going on inside your life. But more often than I care to admit, I follow the same pattern. I find myself living under this misconception uh, that somehow I am in control. And at that moment when I realize that I'm no longer in control, this, this insecurity pops in, right? This worry, this, this fear of what's going to happen. And when that happens, I have, to, I have to remind myself, that's not what God intended for creation. I mean, God intended us to live in serenity, to live in peace. Um, there are memes, you know what those are? There are memes on Facebook, and I just want to go correct everyone every time I see it, that says, because they're wrong, that says they're uh, God... 365 times in the Bible, God says, fear not or do not be afraid. Don't post that. That is wrong. That is just someone, it, it's, it's a beautiful thought, but it's not 365 times. There's just not. And, and I thought about that. I thought, well, that's kind of a bummer, right? How cool would it be, one for each day of the year? But then I realized God didn't need to do it 365 times. He, he needed to do it just once. Do not be afraid. He, he, he said, Jesus said it like this, have no fear, perfect love cast out all fear, and I love you perfectly. What I have to do is, I have to sometimes remind myself of the words that someone read before I came in here about Jesus when he said to the folks, hey, don't worry. Right? Don't worry. Look at, the, look at the birds in the air. Do you see them sweating? No. Look at the lilies of the field. I mean, what? God, they're more elegant and glamorous and beautiful than anything Solomon could. And they don't worry. In fact, in the German language, you know what, you know what word is used for worry? Anybody know? It's our word. It's, it's, it means strangled. So don't, do not be strangled. And the way I have to sometimes remind myself is, you know, I, Barbara, you know, we're, we're ordained. And as ordained people, we are supposed to be theologians and residents. That's what they teach us. You're supposed to have the theological answers to all life's questions. Ha! Huh. I, I, I have to remind myself I know two things. Ready? 
This is it. Write this down. This is real stuff. It's not in the notes. You're getting it free. Right? Ready? Two things. They're deep. They're profound. They're amazing. Thing number one, I have to remind myself, there is a God. Right? Everybody say that. There is a God. And number two, it's not me. You're laughing. There is a God, and it's not me. And when I can remind myself of that, all of a sudden I realize who's really in control. And I force myself to just let God be God. Doesn't mean, like Leah said, doesn't mean everything's going to work out perfect. We're still going to get... People still, we love are still going to get cancer, and people we care about still going to get divorced, and things just aren't going to always work out. And, and, and Jesus never says that they're going to work out. He never, God never promises that. What God promises is, if you just let me be God, I will give you peace. I will give you serenity because I will be with you. Huh. Yeah, I know. It's easy to say it right now because, right, we're in church. It's a churchy thing to say. It's a hard thing to live. Maybe that's why when you're in recovery, and you're trying to remember that you are powerless, that you have no control over things, right? You say this prayer. God, grant me the serenity. So I thought, since, since it's something we struggle with every day, every hour, every 15 minutes, I can't think of a better way to end this service than for us just to stand up and, and pray this prayer. And not just the beginning part that's on all the coffee cups and t-shirts and all, but the whole prayer that Niebuhr wrote. Because it is amazingly powerful. So, will you stand? They're going to be on the screen behind me. I think the one on the bulletin may be different. So we'll use this one. And, and when we say it, let's not... Let's not just rush through it. Let's like breathe at the end of each phrase and see if it settles us. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, Accepting hardships as a pathway to peace. Taking as he did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. Trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will. That I may be risenly happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Amen. Is there anything else we have to say?
Let's hold hands, receive the benediction. Um, don't forget Tuesday night, Fat Tuesday, come and listen to the new and much skinnier Curtis Nicholson Tickle the Piano Ivories after losing 75 or so pounds. Go, Curtis. Hardly see him over there. And then Wednesday night, Ash Wednesday, 7 o'clock, in this very room. So with that, would you receive this benediction? And now, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace both now and forever. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, go from this place. And may the peace and the love and the grace of God go with you. And may you know, may you remember, may you never forget that there is nothing you can do, nothing, nothing that will ever make God love you less. Because when God sees us, he doesn't see the mistakes that we make. He simply says, wow, you're nothing but the best of the best of the best. And can, can you imagine for just a moment what your day would be like if you lived it believing that? You, you'd have a, have a pretty good day. Take care. God bless. And we'll see you Tuesday night.